and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, so just a refresher. Last week we were in Nazareth. That's the the birth, or not the birthplace of Christ, but that's where Christ was from. That's where he grew up. And so we were in Nazareth last week. And remember, uh, Christ's own people came against him. And so from there, what you'll have, the next thing that Christ does, and it's not necessarily a response to the rejection in Nazareth that Christ sends out the disciples, but it is to say this, this is... This is what everything, when he first called out his disciples and he called them to himself, he told them immediately that I'm going to send you out to preach. He told them that this is all the way back to to Mark chapter 3, 13 and 14. You find it, it says, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And you notice here it even says he appointed 12. Um, he calls them to himself. And so there's a lot of similarity between that passage and Mark chapter 6 that's telling us something. That's telling us that what Christ promised is now actually coming to fruition. There's a connection there. And we see that here. So in, in verse 7, he calls the 12 to himself. And remember we talked about, well, why 12? Because this is the new Israel. Israel at this point, in the time of Christ, at this point, Israel has, has, has been um, dissolved, might be an understatement. It's, it's been destroyed. It's, it's, it's no longer functioning as the 12 tribes. So Christ is reinstituting this in a sense, but he's doing it through his apostles. He's doing it through his disciples that he's sending out. So that's why you have number 12. It's not, it's not arbitrary. Um, he begins to send them, but notice how he sends them. He sends them two by two. Now, you might say, well, that's just practical. You know, anytime you go out to share the gospel, anytime you go door to door, anytime you're intentionally engaging people about the things of Christ, it is practical. It's wise to have another person with you. I wouldn't say that it's always that way. It's, not, it's ideal, but it's not always the case, I would say. Um, I always think it's funny when, when, when sometimes if you hear any, anybody say, well, well you know, I, I just don't think it's, it's too dangerous for a Christian to go evangelize if you're alone. And then you see people come to your house who are like selling solar panels and selling books or something. And they're by themselves. Sometimes there's women. And I'm not saying that's wise. I'm not saying to do that. But I'm saying, you know, that's not, Christ does not send them out two by two primarily because it's wise, although it is wise. And it's not to say when he sends them out, it's important to realize it's not to say that this is some kind of normative or universal principle as far as how you're to go forth and evangelize. And we're going to see this, especially when we get down here as far as what they're allowed to take okay the the dangers or the extreme of saying hey you know christ says don't go out with anything you shouldn't go out with anything else or anything also that's not what's going on here however two by two if you remember in the old testament there's a principle there that says let a matter be established with two or three witnesses so anytime there's truth being proclaimed In this context, what Christ is doing is he's saying, when you go in pairs, especially, you know, we don't have that really in our culture, but especially in this culture, when there's two people who witness to the same thing, that is confirmation of the thing being proclaimed in their minds. That's why he's sending them out two by two. So again, it's not just arbitrary. It's not just 
pragmatic or practical, but there's also a, a, a certain statement that's being made when they go forth. It establishes the matter, or this establishes the truth that they're speaking. Now, the next thing in verse 7, look at this. The next thing is that he, he, um, he gave them power over unclean spirits. He gave them power over unclean spirits. Now, think of this, okay? And we're going to really hit this at the end, but you, if, you were to, if you were to commission these disciples to go forth, you know, they have not, they have not up, in, up to this point, they have not been very promising. So in chapter 1, you'll have these same disciples impede the mission of Christ. In chapter 4 and 5, you have them being exasperated with Christ. In chapter 3 of Mark, you have them actually opposing Christ. And in chapter 8, as we'll see two chapters from now, they actually, they're not quite certain of who he is. They're still, they're still wrestling. Remember, even when he calms the sea, when he, calms, when, he, when he causes the waves to stop, the disciples look at him and they say, who, the, who is this guy? And so here, this is, that, was, that was one chapter ago. Here we have one chapter later, Christ is like, all right, you guys are ready. Go out, you know, be extensions of what I've been doing already. I've been teaching this. I've been, I've been healing people. I've been having power over, over demons. Now it's y'all's turn. And if you were to choose a certain time in the life of the disciples, you know, we see on the day of Pentecost, they're certainly more prepared than they are now. But you could almost say that these guys at this point are woefully, woefully, woefully ill-equipped for going on this mission that they're being called to do. You remember the rejection that Christ is getting everywhere. He's a controversial figure. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a lightning rod as far as all the controversy going on. People want to kill this guy. And now he's sending his disciples out. And so you're like, well, I don't, I mean, is that really wise? You know, but here's what, here's what matters, I guess. Here's what counts, okay? The, the very last part of verse 7, you notice it says, And he gave them power over unclean spirits. He is the one who gives them power. He doesn't look at them and say, You know what? I, I think that now you guys have the, the power or the wisdom or the discernment or the, the things that you need to go forth and do it. He's not saying that. They don't have that. They don't, they don't have what they need to go forth and be effective. What he says is, I am going to give you that power. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to come from me. It's going to be something I supply. That's how we are today. That's how it should be. Um, we cannot go out in our own dependence or our own. And we're going to talk about this at the end again. But, you know, anytime that we go forth and it's like, hey, I, I think I'm ready to go. I, you know, I've, 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 I've watched all the YouTube videos I need to watch. I've read all the books. I've, I've gone to the conferences. I've done this. I've done that. Now I'm ready to go. And the reality is, is we are never ready. These guys will never be equipped. You can take, you can take Peter, you can take Paul the Apostle, you can take these pillars in the first church and you can look at these guys, they would be the first to admit, I have flaws, I have warts, I'm not as effective as I want to be, I'm not as equipped as I want to be, I don't have the wisdom that I want, I'm still learning, I'm still trying to learn, I'm still trying to gain, get to that point. Paul the Apostle in Philippians talks about it. I have not I have not achieved what I'm what I'm aiming for yet. And yet God uses them. Same here, right? Christ knows, hey, I'm giving you what you need. Then he turns around and he says, but there's a catch, right? Verse 8, there's a catch. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So take nothing except, right? Now, here's the thing with Mark. The gospel of Mark is unique in that the items here that are listed are found explicitly in another passage in the Old Testament somewhere, namely in Exodus chapter 12. So if you turn to Exodus chapter 12, let's turn there real fast. Exodus chapter 12. This is, 
This is right before God is going to come in and destroy all the firstborn of Egypt. So this is right before the Exodus. This is right before the great deliverance. And remember in Exodus, everything points to Exodus in the Old and New Testament. Anytime there's deliverance talked about or the the great things that God does, redemption, Exodus is always used as the illustration to demonstrate like the epitome of what God does is in the it's in the Exodus in the days of Moses. Look at look at what God has done. Same thing here. So this is Exodus chapter twelve verse eleven. Let's start in verse ten. You shall let none of it remain until morning. It's talking about the Passover. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Verse eleven. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. And see that phrase right there, in haste. You don't have that in Mark, but what what Mark is telling us is something like that. That this is a mission of urgency. It's a it's a mission of anticipation, expectation. It's also a mission of God's judgment on the places where they go and then turn around and refuse to hear the gospel. And we'll see that in just a second. But that's the point. So there's a link here, and I'm saying that because in Matthew and in Luke you don't have the same list there and so you're like well what's going on here right if there's if it's not the same list what's going on what's going on is that mark is very intentionally tying it back to namely the exodus to something else to show you that christ his mission here is a new exodus it's the redemption what you have in exodus under moses is a it's a type of the the redemption that christ is going to bring about when he comes to earth When God delivers his people from their sins, God delivers his people from their foes, not just their sins internally, but their foes externally. At at least now, it's not like in the kingdom sense that that the Jews were anticipating, but it's to say that as the gospel goes forth, as 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 the gospel influences the culture, there's going to be effects and changes that are going to take place because there's a new king. There's redemption. There's 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 um, salvation in Christ. There's even the church. Okay, so you have the church in the Old Testament, but you have, in a sense, it's a, it's a fuller expression of in the New Testament, fuller light, fuller revelation of what the church is. Okay, so now let's go back to Mark chapter 6 and look at that passage again or that phrase again. And again, he says, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Okay, that's the first thing. He's preparing them for mission. Now, the second thing is he's telling, he's going to tell them how to act now, how to act when you go out on this mission. First, he's preparing them. He said, okay, gather this. Don't gather that. Leave that back. Okay, but when you go out, here's how you're to act. Here's what you're to expect. And he says in verse 10, Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. Now that's hopeful. Why is that hopeful? Because he's he's anticipating that people are actually going to let you in their homes. They're not going to reject you. They're actually going to let you in. Now, in this culture, at this point in time, there was a there was a, a, a huge network of hospitality in this culture. Okay, they don't have they don't have hotels, they don't have Airbnbs, they it's it's if if you're traveling anywhere, it's it's a necessity that there is this hospitality, this, this idea of networking, this system. So you can, and you can see this in the, in the Old Testament. You know, you get a guy, he goes to a certain place, and it's just expected. Hey, I need a place to stay tonight. All right, come on in. They're not necessarily a stranger because they're Jewish. And I'm Jewish, so we're all Jewish, and, and there you go. Same principle applies in the New Testament, right? 
in the sense of, hey, I'm a Christian. A Christian needs help. A Christian is looking for a place to stay. Needing, you know, he's got, he's passing through. We're going to look at this. That, yeah, I'm going to help. I'm going to use all my resources to the extent that I can, and the extent that he's not a charlatan, to help out the mission, to advance the cause. Right. And so that's what Christ is saying. He said, hey, when you go out there, people are going to help you. You're going to be able to find a home, and when you go into the home, bless the home. However, verse 11. Here's an ominous stone. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Now, we've all heard this. When you shake the mat, and it's, it's, we've used it. I don't know if maybe, has anyone ever shaken the mat? You know, if somebody rejects the message, and you take your shoes off, and you clank them together, or whatever. Um, I know some guys that have done that and i just i'm like well all right but nobody really knows what that means so in this culture to shake the mat or to shake the dust off your clothing what it meant is if you were if you were living in palestine if you were a jew in palestine if you travel outside of palestine you are now entering into pagan territory foreign country right hostile territory when you return to palestine before you enter back into palestine it was required required that you take your garments off, you take your shoes off, your sandals, whatever you're wearing, and you, you slap all the dirt out. You slap the dust out. Why? Because you don't want the holy city polluted by this pagan territory, by the pagan dirt, by the pagan dust. That's what it means. Now look at this passage and ask yourself, what is Christ saying here? Christ is saying that when you go to these places and they reject you, essentially they reject me, he's saying. When they reject your message, when they reject you, What does he say? He says, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. He is consigning them to the place of pagans. That's what he's doing. And you see, what's nice about this is that already in the life of Christ, you're you're realizing that your ethnicity, your nation, where you live, it doesn't matter as far as your salvation goes, as far as your standing in the eyes of God goes. If you reject the message of Christ, it does not matter if you are a child of Abraham, you're unclean. You're pagan. You're an unbeliever. You're outside the camp. You're set up however you want to say it. You know, that's what's going on here. When they're saying, hey, shake the dust off, you're saying this is pagan territory, even though it's in Palestine. This is, this is hostile enemy country, even though it's in Palestine. Amazing. But look what happens next. He says, surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And you might be looking at your Bible and you're like, nah, this guy's making this up. I don't have it in my Bible unless you have the, the, so, so, and this is a textual variant. So if you don't, if you're not using the King James and the new King James, what's called the received text, the Masoretic text, um, then, then that's not in here. The reason why I want to include this, at least in this, so even though, so, so we're not even going to touch this right now yet, because at the end of Mark, we're going to have to deal with this as far as like what manuscript tradition you're reading from. Um, So if you're not using the King James or the New King James, you're using a tradition of manuscripts that's called the critical text, the critical tradition, okay? And and it's not to say that's a bad word, it's not. Um, But you don't see that in there because uh, it is in Matthew and it is in Luke. It's not in Mark, so what happened, depending on who you ask, right, what could have happened is um, there was a scribe perhaps that tried to harmonize Matthew and Luke with Mark. And because of that, the beauty of being a Christian, as far as our traditions go, as far as the scriptures go, is that there are so many manuscripts, you can see where the variants are. That's a good thing. That's how we know what probably happened. 
So you're looking at Mark and you're saying, I don't have this in here. Was this an error? Not necessarily. It was more like a scribe trying to harmonize Mark with Matthew and Luke. And it became part of the tradition. But now that we have so many manuscripts, you can go back and you, you can figure out, hey, that's just that's not actually supposed to be there. All right. But I'm bringing it in because it is in Matthew. It is in Luke. It is not to say Christ did not say this. All right. So he says something to the effect of it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, listen to this. Okay, Would you say that every sin is the same as far as how God judges the sin? Now, we know from Scripture that every sin is mortal. Every sin is damn worthy. Every sin leads to judgment. There's no distinction between venial or mortal sin. We know that. Scripture teaches that, right? But at the same time, we do find that there are sins that are worse than other sins. And they're going to be judged more harshly than other sins are. So this is one of those sins. Christ is saying the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were very great, by the way, right? It caused God to come down with wrath and with fury, and he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. But he's saying, yes, that's bad. And their sin was evil. Those were malicious, evil cities. And yet, when you go to these cities... With the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they reject you, they reject the message. On the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for them. Why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah did not have gospel preaching going to those cities. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the person of Jesus Christ nor his disciples going forth with the proclamation, with the clear, the clear proclamation of Jesus Christ. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, as you read through the Old Testament, there's more and more and more light exposed as to what the gospel actually is. So that by the time you get to Christ, man, you have a lot of gospel revelation, especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's saying their sin is going to be far more heinous or is more heinous than anything that Sodom and Gomorrah did. And so we look at this and we're saying just in quick reference to our own country or to the West in general, you have, you have Western Europe, you have America, you have Canada. These places have been exposed to a lot of gospel, a lot of blessing as far as the things that have been preached, the churches, the, Re- the, the, the Reformation, all these things that have taken place on the soil of America, Canada, Europe. And, and, and what that tells us is that by, by extension or by extrapolating what Christ is saying here, we can look at our own country and we can say, man, to the extent that we have received a lot of light, we are held accountable for what we do with that light. And we as individuals, that's, that's as far as a nation goes. And so we know that God's judgment, of course, we're under God's judgment. But as an individual, see, the danger of hearing the gospel is that as individuals, we are also responsible for what we hear, the gospel that we know. So that let's say there's an unbeliever or unbelievers, let's say in this church or, you know, earlier today in Lubbock, I said the same thing. If, if, if an unbeliever is exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejects that gospel, they're going to be judged more harshly than somebody, let's say, in the middle of Africa who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who die in their sin and they still go to hell. Romans 1 says they are without excuse. They're, 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 because of natural revelation, general revelation, their conscience, creation. These things testify to God. And they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hold down the truth. And yet they haven't had the actual testimony of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth and, and, and calling them to turn from their sin because Christ has come in the flesh. So, so look to him. They don't have anything like that. They're still, again, they're still damned. I get that question all the time. What about the people in, in you know, China or Africa or South America? They've never heard the gospel. Right? Romans 1 says they know, they know enough about God to condemn them. But that's why we send missionaries. That's why we send people to them, right? But here in America, we've had that. 
And here in this church, right, we're having, we, we get that. And so that's why even for our children, it's so, I mean, that's why we've got to be praying for our children all the time. Man, they are hearing a lot of gospel. There's my, my, my illustration here. He's showing me, yeah, that's good, buddy, yeah. But, <laughs> you know what a cute kid. My illustration. Yes, yeah, he's like, here's Sodom and Gomorrah, look, Dad. <laughs> But no, that, that is the thing. We really need to pray because they are, they're, they're going to be held accountable for what they hear. We want them to respond in faith. And so God can do that, but only God can do that. So um, that's what's going on here. So verse 12, look at verse 12. And this is, what they, this is the mission itself. So now they're actually sent out. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And we've seen that a lot already. That's kind of like the common catalog for Mark. This, this, he, he, he groups these words together. When they go out, they preach, preach repentance. Repentance, of course, is a, it's a, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind about God, about sin. It's a change. It's, it's a, you're walking one way, you change direction. It can be that in the Hebrew is that in the Greek is more metanoia in your head and your mind. You go from loving God to all this, or excuse me, let's start out with hating God. And the Bible says we have enmity with God. We go from hating God, being hostile in mind against God, living for ourselves, doing our own thing, going our own way. God comes in as mercy on us, and all of a sudden, boom, we love God. We hate our sin. We, we wage war against our sin. We turn from our sin. We want to go in the right direction for the sake of Christ. That's, that's, that's repentance. Christ preached that. John the Baptist preaches that. Paul's going to preach that. Paul's going to command all persons everywhere. He's going to say God commands all persons everywhere to repent. Here they're preaching that. In verse 13, it says, And they cast out many demons, we've seen that already, and anointed with oil many who were sick, we have never seen that, and healed them. Now, what's the oil about? Because that's new. The only time you hear or see or read anything in the New Testament regarding oil is here and in the book of James. The letter of James. Okay, so what does this mean? Now, number one, realize oil, probably olive oil, was a staple in every home back then. And oil has a lot of, olive oil is very, it is very healthy. It has a lot of medicinal properties. So they were using it medicinally in that culture. However, when Christ refers to oil here, and, and uh, I actually did a lot of digging on this. It was, it was somewhat of an interesting uh, look into olive oil. But uh, following, I guess, just, just, just commentators and I think biblically speaking, more importantly, biblically speaking, if you remember in the Old Testament, what, is, what does oil always represent? God's blessing, God's commissioning, God's anointing. And so in the Old Testament, who are the ones that have oil poured on their heads? Kings and priests. That's to show God's blessing upon them. And so here with this, it's the, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's symbolic of God's blessing. It's to demonstrate, just like in James, when you're praying for somebody and then the oil is anointed, it's to demonstrate God's blessing upon the person. And so as like Calvin says, you know, even if somebody's not healed, let's say somebody's healed, you rub the oil on them, you put the oil on and they're not healed by it. They're not, not by the oil, but by the prayer by, by God. They're not healed by God. Does that mean the oil was useless? No, because you remember Christ when the lady comes up and she takes the nard and she breaks it and she, she anoints Christ and Christ says, she's anointing me for my burial. So the idea here is not for Christ. He knows he's not staying dead. The idea is, is like we talked last week, whenever you have these healings or whenever you have these, these situations when Christ comes in and restores somebody, it's pointing to the greater, more general restoration of that person. 
So God's blessing, the oil is to represent God's blessing upon that person, whether or not they're physically healed in the moment. Because we know that if they're in Christ, God's blessing ultimately is upon them and including their bodies in the resurrection. So oil is to, 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 to demonstrate God's blessing. Just think of it that way. You know, they're going out. They got some oil. Um, they're, they're, they're placing it on the people. And, and that's to demonstrate, hey, God is, is going to restore you. God's restoration is upon you. Okay. Now, to, to kind of look at some things as far as application goes, Kate. Okay? Number one, and I hope this is encouraging. Uh, it's encouraging to me when I see these disciples. And Christ sends them forth. Just like when you see the demoniac who's cutting himself and he's crying out and he's in the tombs and he's, nobody can restrain him. Nobody knows what to do with him. But then Christ comes in and delivers this man, heals this man, and then he turns around and sends this man back to his people. And if you can imagine this man and you ask yourself, what did that man know about Christ? That he could actually go and communicate. Well, he knew that he was undone. He was helpless. He was a sinner. And then Christ, this man shows up and delivers him. That's all you have to know, right? To actually go and, and tell somebody about Christ. Now, I would say again, like I pointed out earlier, this is not like um, a, a stereotypical or, 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 or um, this is not normative in the sense of this is this sending of these disciples is not to say this is how it should be done in every scenario. But there are general principles that you can take from this scenario and say, oh, yeah, this is just this. This is this is like me, man. This is like us. You know, because you have these guys, again, they don't know everything. They've impeded the mission. They've been exasperated with Christ. They don't understand Christ fully. And yet Christ is like, you know what, guys, you're ready to go. Why? Because he gives them the power. And if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what you're going to find is that this is the general pattern of Scripture. That there's a reason why God sends out people who are ill-equipped. And this now, now it's not to say you shouldn't be striving to be more equipped. We should all be striving to be more equipped. You know, reading the books, watching the YouTube videos, all these things. Those are good things, right? Being trained up, being being as studied as we possibly can. That helps. Those things are very effective. Absolutely. However, if you look at First Corinthians chapter one, look what you have. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And we see that in our world today, right? People get all happy because Justin Bieber might be a Christian. And you're like, who cares, man? Jordan Peterson, we're like, man, I hope he's a Christian. Why well, do too, right? But for the sake of his own soul. And yes, he is influential. But even with, without Justin Peterson, or excuse me, Jordan Peterson, the kingdom of God is going to be okay, right? I'm sorry. Even if, you know, Kanye West, if he's a false convert, the kingdom of God is not going to suffer. Because Christ is the one driving the kingdom of God. We don't need the noble. We don't need the wise. We hope they come in. Sure, that would be awesome. Augustine was a noble man. He was saved. So it happens, but it's to say, Paul saying here, hey, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the, the, the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And that does remind me of Kanye West, man. The first thing Kanye West, he goes on to Joel Osteen and he's like, man, it's a good thing God's got the best artists on his side now. Now we can start doing some things. Because now the, the best artist is on the right team. It's on the right, and you're like, dude, 
But you see the mindset, right? What Paul is saying here is this is exactly why God rarely chooses the noble. And when he does choose the noble, it's like Augustine. Augustine really was in his day. He, was, he, was, he would have been what's, what's, I guess, equivalent to something like the, um, the chair of some big department at, at, at Harvard or something. Augustine was a big deal. He was famous. And whenever he was converted, the first thing that he does is he runs away from everything. And he's like, I just want to go sit in the woods and be with God. And then, of course, they drag him out and make him get, get, be, go to ministry and stuff. But, you know, that's the, that's the mindset, right? You realize I really, I really am base. Not based. Base. I am, I am um, I'm not wise. I'm, I'm not equipped for what I need. Paul the Apostle. If anybody was equipped, it was Paul the Apostle. But Paul the Apostle looks at himself and he realizes, I go forth with fear and trembling. Why is he fearing and trembling? Because he knows, in myself, I am not, I am not sufficient. Unless God moves, it's not, nothing's going to happen. Unless God moves, this gospel proclamation is not going to do what it needs to do. That's us, is it not? Right? You go forth and you're like, man, I don't, I don't, know, how to, I don't know how to share the gospel. And even if, even if you've done it a thousand times, it's still nerve-wracking. It's still like, man, I don't know what to say. And I always do it wrong. And I always come back, right? And you're like, man, why did I say that? Not this. But but here's the thing, right? To the extent that that's going on, who gets the credit? You see, who gets the glory for that? When you realize, hey, man, I'm nothing. I'm not equipped. You can go to, and that's, you know, it's, it's like this. It's like this. Look. When it, comes to, when it comes to salvation, one of the things that happens is you realize your dependency on the Lord in every aspect. And so these guys, as they're going forth, I think part of what Christ is doing here is to demonstrate, yeah, are they in over their heads? Yeah. Are they over their skis? Yes. But that's so that they realize they have no hope unless they look at Christ. That's what they're doing here. And I think that's why Christ is sending them out now. And even later, they're never going to be equipped, man. These guys are always going to be bumbling, um, stumbling bumbling, and bumbling. And so are we. Um, here's the other thing, though. Okay, The other thing I want to look at is this... this this, uh, this idea of hospitality and, and, and provision. Um, if you look at Mark chapter 5 or 6, again, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. Now, look with me to 3 John. And I think it's important to turn to 3 John because it's not very often when something comes up when you have to turn to 3 John. That's like one of those untouchable books. But it is in the Bible. It's right before Jude. 3 John exists. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look what's going on here. It's a neat letter, too. So is 2 John. Those are neat letters. Look what John says here, though. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. Now, when he says strangers here, he's not talking about some random guy on the street necessarily. He's talking about, look what he says. If you send them, he'll tell you what he's talking about. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake. You see that? So... Um, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Here's the thing. Whenever you support, let's say, the church, whenever you support some kind of gospel labor, you are receiving the rewards of the gospel labor itself. It's, it's a team effort. You know, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. I think it was uh, William Carey who talked about he will go down. He was a missionary. And he talked about how he'll be the one who goes into the mine, but he's got to have somebody holding the rope up top. Otherwise, he can't go down into the mine. That's a beautiful principle of how this stuff works. 
So as these guys are going forth, yeah, they can go forth without their without all their stuff except their staff. But they can't, you know, you can't bring two tunics all this. They can do that, assuming that God's people are going to be on the other end to help them out. And that's the concept that you have in the, in the church. So, so in our in our culture today, in, in, in American evangelicalism, you know, it's 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 like because of TBN and because of prosperity preaching and because of all these false prophets out there who go forth and they're like, you know, if you want God's blessing or if you want God's healing, you got to give money, just like the Roman Catholics did with their indulgences. Same thing. But because of that, you have one extreme on the on the one hand, whereas now you have on the other hand, you have the other extreme where. There, it's like there's no principle at all as far as giving and as far as helping out the work of God. And that's not true either. And so as a faithful Bible preacher, and I hope by now you realize we're not in it for the money. And if you were, you should not be a reform preacher. You need to go to another denomination where they actually bring in a lot of bank. But as far as the Reformed church goes, biblically speaking, there are principles and patterns in Scripture that demonstrate God's people, to the extent that we're able, are to help out the, the work of God as far as the things that are going on. Okay, Now, um, just to point to, let's say one place. Let's look at Christ's ministry. How is Christ able to go on and in, in, in minister? Well, look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 tells us Christ is not out there just eating roots and bugs, unlike John the Baptist, maybe. But look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance, from their, from their um, possessions is the better word. Substance, possessions, I don't know what the other translations have, but it's something like that. They're sustaining him as he ministers. But it doesn't stop there. You also have this in, let's say, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians tells us, chapter 9, and this is verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? And by, by the way, that right there is, is an argument against celibacy. Like the Roman Catholics, hey, if you're a priest, if you're a minister, you, you have to be celibate. Paul says, no, we have the right to take a believing wife. There's right there a principle that if you are going to get married, make sure it's a believer. Okay. As do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. In other words, they're married. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Now he's saying we have a right because what they were doing is as they would go around, they were modeling basically how to work. Because in that culture, kind of like, you know, in certain cultures today, there's, there's not a lot of demonstration as far as, as far as, hey, what do you do, you know, during the day? Well, you, Paul's there. He's here. He's here. He's going to help you to know how to work. Okay. But what Paul's saying here is that there's also the principle or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Who, whoever goes to war at his own expense. That's rhetorical. Nobody. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Nobody. Or who tends a flock and does not drink in the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should um, be partaker of his hope. Now we know that this is regarding spiritual things, the preaching of the word, ministry, things like that, mission work, because he says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, 
Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And then one other one in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's shorter. He says this in 17 and 18, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, he uses the same principle, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And I'm saying this, by the way, not to get some kind of pay increase. I could, I could honestly care less the Lord provides. The thing is, though, is that it's very important that we're not a church that's stingy when it comes to advancing the gospel work. We need to be a church that is saying, to the extent that we're able, we need to be able to support, let's say we got a a missionary who's going out and he's part of our group and we know him and he's got good doctrine and all that. And to the extent we're like, we look at it, we're like, yeah, let's try to support this guy. Let's try to help him to go somewhere with the gospel. Let's try to, let's try to get the the kingdom of God advance. It's very important. You know, the fact that we're meeting in a building, all these, there's a lot of practicalities in it. Everything that we have now, you might be like in, at, at Lubbock, we have a bunch of college students and like, man, they're in debt. They don't, you know, they're looking for work. They don't have it. Maybe you're in that spot. You know, like, I don't, what do I do? Right? Well, there's, there's, there's other ways to help out. Um, think about like even our homes, everything we have is a gift from God. You know, our homes, our cars, everything to the extent maybe you have, maybe you have some coats you don't wear. Others can wear, you know, just, just be mindful that, that as God's people, we're called to help out the work of God to the extent that we're able. It's not to say you have to break your bank or anything, um, but it's, you know, although you, like, like we do see in the, in the, in the book of Acts, you know, they were blessed for that to, to, to a degree, but um, just be mindful of that, you know, not to be stingy. With the things that God has given us. And we know that God provides. God's going to give. And that's what that's another principle of Paul we don't have time to look at. But he says, you know, to the extent that you give, God is going. God is, unfortunately, like the, 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 the prosperity gospel, you know, when they, they abuse that stuff. When it's like, hey, if you give $5, God's going to give you $500. Well, no, not necessarily, right? But there is the principle that to the extent that you give, God is going to take care of you. He will take care of you. All right. So lastly, I want to look at this idea as far as, look, the disciples could have turned back. If you think of it, they could have turned back. They're about to go up into serious opposition without Christ. And Christ tells them to go forth and to share the gospel, preach the gospel. They could look at him and and as we see in in, in John chapter six, when Christ says some hard sayings, they leave. Same thing could have happened here. But it says they went out and preached that people should repent. And then at the end, we're going to see that they're going to come back and they're going to rejoice. They're going to say, man, we saw all kinds of things happening. When Christ sends out the 70 and Luke, they come back saying this and that, you know, and Christ says, I saw Satan falling out of heaven like lightning. There's a lot of things. When you go out, when I go out, as we, as we communicate the gospel, as we share Christ, as we, as we live as Christians, as we, as we call people to turn to Christ, things are going to happen. Because you are speaking the gospel when there is so much responsibility with the gospel, so much weight. You are speaking life, both life and death, blessing and curse. Think about that. Every time you share the gospel, there's either a blessing on that as far as the person hearing it, or there's a curse upon that person. That is heavy stuff. But that's what God has has entrusted to us. That's why the gospel is precious. This precious gospel as we go forth, this weighty gospel. But we know that there's no power in us. The power is given to us. As God's people, God has given us this power to go out and do this. He's commissioned us. He's told us to go forth into all the world. And, and, and we see, we know things happen. We know good things happen. 
So if you're in Christ today, there is a responsibility and there's a blessing. If you're outside of Christ today, then remember the words of Christ where he says on the day of judgment, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. We know God does not play around when it comes to sin, when it comes to to judgment. And if you're outside of Christ, that's what's coming. If you're in Christ, we know that Christ on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because that, you know, the fire and the wrath of Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction that's headed for us. When Christ is on the cross, He intercepts that. He takes upon that wrath in our place. So that we'll never cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God never forsakes His people now. He did Christ, not because He did anything wrong, but because He was bearing our wrong, our sin. And so be confident and encouraged as we go forth as God's people into this world. And and know this is the only hope they have. This is the only way that they can actually... Like Christ says, have life abundantly. That they can have right minds. They can have a life of peace in Christ. Alright, so look to Christ and then and then know that He's with us. Let's pray. We thank you, O Christ. We thank you that that thank you for entrusting us with such a precious gospel. We know that, that so often we 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 just like these disciples, we stumble and we don't have the right things to say, we chicken out. Lord, forgive me on so many occasions, Lord, when I've done this. Father, help your people. We pray that you would give us grace to have doors that are wide open for, for sharing the gospel. Lord, we know that you have people in Clovis. We know that you have sheep here who who, who have not heard your voice yet, who, who have gone astray. And, and Lord, give us grace to, to represent our, our shepherd well, our, our, our king well, as we, as we go forth as his ambassadors. Well, we can't do it without you. We see these disciples, Lord, and, and we think if, if they can't do it without your power, how much more are we in need of that power? Lord, so give us your power. Help us to believe in the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us grace to, to, to cling to that, that promise that you, you give us the Holy Spirit. You help us. And we know especially in those moments you're with us, Lord. Thank you for being with us at all times, and especially in those moments, Lord, when we're, when, when we're in the trenches And we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to act. Lord, give us grace. Help us, O God. Give us grace to resist the enemy. Lord, keep us from the enemy. Keep us from evil. We know that that the enemy is prowling, roaring. Lord, we we cannot take him on ourselves. And so we look to our, our Christ, our King, who came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. We thank you for this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.